Grace and peace to you on this, what for me is Sunday afternoon, Palm Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. I hope this perspective finds you well. I've been really deeply moved the last few weeks by seeing God at work in the Asbury revival, as they call it, or awakening. Also, by the movie Jesus Revolution, which touched me deeply. I won't go into it, but because of circumstances, I ended up seeing it four times so far and found it very worthwhile. The fourth time, since I knew the story so well, I ended up spending a lot of time crying and praying for the younger generation, current younger generation, or generations, praying that God would move among them in a way that would meet them like he did so many of us back in the late 60s, especially the early and mid-1970s, a time that basically set the course in many ways for my life and the lives of so many others in following the Lord. I want to share an unusual perspective with you today, at least unusual for me in these humble perspectives. Without having it on the plan, I ended up sharing at our church this morning something that I believe that the Lord truly gave me and it was something that was encouraging to me and had feedback from several people that it was and as i thought about it it seemed right to share it also with a broader audience with you who read or listen to the humble perspectives so let me begin i'm going to be working from notes but at the same time uh especially when I get into reading the scripture later on, I'll pause for spontaneous comments. So this may be a little different than the usual perspective and a little longer also. But I hope on this beginning of what is often called Holy Week, it will be a helpful meditation for you as it is for me as we think about our Lord, His triumphant death, and glorious resurrection and ascension to the throne. On Thursday this past week as I was studying the book of Revelation, I remembered that we would be remembering Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem today. I was struck with this thought. The designated king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, made his grand entrance into the earthly capital city on a donkey, not on a war horse. What manner of king is this who came in such a way in order to defeat death and all the powers that bound us? What manner of persons ought the citizens of his kingdom be while we wait for his glorious return? In Revelation 5, after John in the Spirit had come into the heavenlies, 
he heard the question ring out, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? When no one in heaven or on the earth was found worthy to open that book or to look into it, John began to weep greatly. But then one of the elders said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. But what did John see? A lion? No. John wrote, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. What an astounding thing. The Lion King became worthy to open the book by offering himself as a lamb to be sacrificed for the life of the world. History was changed for all time and forever, not by some great act of power, but by the foolishness of the cross, as the Apostle Paul would later put it. As I've been studying Revelation, I've not been making a timeline or drawing a chart or trying to figure out the time of his coming. I take the repeated words of Jesus seriously. It's not for you to know the time. But I have come to a conclusion. Revelation is written as an encouragement and instruction for the followers of the Lamb while we live in the midst of Babylon. Jesus is indeed the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the promised Son of David who will reign forever. But in Revelation, it is not the Lion who is celebrated. Rather, it is Jesus, the victorious Lamb, who is celebrated again and again. It is the Lamb who is the Shepherd King, and the redeemed of mankind, the overcomers, are those who follow Him, who follow the Lamb. Although Babylon's ten-king alliance, along with the beast, will wage war against the Lamb, the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 17:14. Now I can tell you this. Humanly speaking, when going to war, I would rather follow the lion than the lamb. However, that's not the way of God's kingdom. God's king overcame by emptying himself, by taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 9. This same Jesus, the Lamb of God, has said to his followers, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The way up, as has been said, is the way down. The way to re resurrection, the way to victory, is the way of the cross. How is it that often in church history, and in this present day within our own nation, that so many Christians seem to think that God's kingdom can come on earth through power, 
whether military power or political power. Did not Paul write, Christ Jesus is he who died? Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And I add, why would he need to intercede for us? Well, Paul goes on. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's a quotation from Psalm 44:22, a psalm well worth reading and praying. Paul went on, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This all leads me to ponder the Lamb's journey here on earth. While you and I were not there to literally follow in Jesus' footsteps in the land of Palestine 2,000 years ago, still, we are no less called to embrace the way of the cross just as he did. Yes, we will reign with him, but we are already a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, who has the body of the king, who is also our high priest, have been created and redeemed in order to represent as priests the king's rule and the king's way of life in the midst of a world still in rebellion against him. Thus, I've been thinking about that final journey Jesus made from Galilee to Jerusalem. Here are some primary details that I've gathered from all the four Gospels. No one Gospel gives them all. The turning point of Jesus' early minute earthly ministry came when he asked, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus stated clearly that it was God the Father who had revealed this to Peter. And from that time on, Jesus began to talk to his disciples about going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be rejected by the Jewish leaders, to be killed, and to be raised up on the third day. Although Jesus spoke plainly, even reiterating again and again over the next several weeks that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, his disciples simply could not understand. It was beyond their comprehension. After all, they, quote, knew, unquote, from the scriptures that the promised Messiah, the King, would deliver Israel from their oppressors and make God's people the greatest nation. Now the king was there with them. And might we add, the disciples fully expected to be part of Jesus' great victory. And we know from the accounts that they were anticipating their own high positions of authority in his government. Six days after Peter made this confession, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. There he was transfigured before their eyes. His face shone like the sun, 
and his garments became white as light. Matthew described it that way. Then, behold, Moses and Elijah were there also appearing in glory with Jesus. And Luke tells us the three were speaking about his departure. The Greek word for departure is his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This puts a perspective on what Jesus did that is worth meditating on during this Holy Week. It's significant, I think, that although Jesus atoned for our sins, he did not die on the Day of Atonement. He died during the celebration of Passover. He died during the celebration of first fruits. He died during the celebration of the unleavened bread. Jesus, by this exodus or departure, the focus we're supposed to have, I think, is to look back to the Passover, the original Passover and Exodus, when God delivered his people from bondage to Pharaoh. Just as on the cross, Jesus overcame the powers of darkness, the powers of hell, to deliver his people and set us free so that we could be in his kingdom. Not long after Jesus, after this event at the Transfiguration, Jesus made the journey from Galilee to the Jordan across from Jericho. While he was still on the east side of the river, he received word that his friend, friend Lazarus was seriously ill. Yet Jesus waited there on the east side for two days until he knew that Lazarus had died. Only then did he and his disciples and his other followers join in with the crowd of pilgrims who were also making their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. They crossed the river, and as they passed through Jericho, Jesus stopped to call Zacchaeus down out of the tree. Lazarus has died. Jesus is on his way up to comfort the sisters and unknown to anybody but himself to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he has time. He takes time to stop. That Zacchaeus had climbed in this tree in order to get a glimpse of Jesus amid the large crowd. But Jesus stopped, called Zacchaeus down from the tree and invited himself to stay at Zacchaeus' home. Also there at Jericho, two blind men, one named Bartimaeus, began to call out insistently, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Apart from the disciples, it was two blind men who saw clearly that Jesus was the promised king and he was the Lord. Jesus stopped and healed them. Then Jesus and his disciples, his disciples with the crowd of pilgrims made the long climb. And it is a long climb. It's about 15 miles up from sea level at the Jordan and Jericho to an elevation of about 3,400 feet. If they had taken no breaks, we're told that it would take about six and a half hours to make that journey. 
instead of going directly into Jerusalem, as we might think by reading the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John tells us that Jesus went to Bethany, a village about a mile and five-eighths southeast of the wall around Jerusalem, just south of the Mount of Olives. There in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had their home, and near there, Lazarus would have been buried. John 11 is the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, a miracle of miracles. On the day before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, their home became the place where Jesus would stay for several days leading up to the Passover meal, which he and his disciples ate at a home in Jerusalem. It was to Bethany that Jesus would send the disciples to find a colt, the foal of a donkey, that he would ride from the Mount of Olives into the city. However, raising up Lazarus, as we can all understand, caused no little stir. Let me read John's account, beginning immediately after Lazarus was raised. I'll be starting in John 11:45. if you'd like to follow along in your Bible. I'll pause to make comments from time to time. John wrote, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and they were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now Caiaphas didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Let me pause. As you look at that carefully, I think it will become clear that the chief priests and the Pharisees weren't just worried about the nation. They were worried about their power base. They were afraid that Jesus continuing to do what he's doing and people asking, is this the Messiah, is this the coming king? that it'll stir up Rome and they'll lose their positions of power. So Caiaphas, not knowing what he was doing, ended up prophesying that it was right for one man to die for the people. And Jesus was, that was God's plan for Jesus to do, not just for the people of Israel, but that he could gather the children of God from all the nations and make them one people, one holy nation. So, back to the text, 
from that day on they planned together to kill him. Therefore, John says, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. But he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. Ephraim's about 10 to 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? you think he'll come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Then comes chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. I'll pause a second to point out something I hadn't noticed there. John says that even before the triumphal entry, Judas was already intending to betray Jesus. Judas said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? And I said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had, had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. No one in that room understood that the day of his burial wasn't that far off, except Jesus alone. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might, that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches and the palm trees of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now this isn't primarily a praise as we would normally read it. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. And the word Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save us. So here are the crowds giving Jesus a royal entry into the city like they would greet an emperor or a king or a great general returning from a great victory in battle, spreading their palm branches and their cloaks before him, shouting, Save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This was very political in their view, and even in the bigger view of the kingdom of God in many ways, and the chief priests got it. They saw what was in 
what was being threatened, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the rest of them. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Again, this was not, I'm adding to what John said, this is not some blind thing. People who are familiar with the scriptures knew Zechariah 9.9. Their expectation was that the Messiah would come in this way. But here he is on a donkey's colt. Other gospels say on the a colt, the foal of a donkey. These things his disciples did not understand at first, John says. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're not doing any good? Look, the world is going after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these men then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That sounds good, remember? His face shining like the sun and his clothing as white as light. But he doesn't follow it with anything like that. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So now Jesus has taken us right back around. The way up is the way down. The way to exaltation, the way to victory, is the way of the cross. And that was not just true for Jesus, it's true for us. That's why he says, not only of himself, but of us, that we must offer our lives like seed to be buried in the ground. If we're going to serve him, we must follow him. If we're going to serve him, we must follow him. And if we serve him, although this world won't honor us, the Father will honor him. But this is hard. Jesus is a human. He knows what he's facing, and yet now when these Gentiles show up, he was sent to the house of Israel, he said. Later he's going to send out his apostles to the nations and the church to the nations. But when he sees these Gentiles come and seek him out, he realizes the time is now. It hits him in a fresh way, in a new way. And he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this hour, this purpose, I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That word lifted up in Greek is very interesting. It doesn't mean just to be lifted up physically. It's also translated in other places to be exalted. Jesus was exalted by being hung between heaven and earth on a cross. It was there on the cross that we see the glory of a God of love who became a man laying down his life for his people and for the life of the world as John said in John chapter 6 for Jesus John says was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die so I say again the designated king over all kings the Lord over all lords made his grand entrance into the earthly capital city on a donkey, not on a war horse. What manner of king is this who came in such a way in order to defeat death and all the powers that bound us? And what manner of persons ought the citizens of his kingdom be while we wait for his glorious return? I pray that you will join me in taking time this week to meditate on the things that Jesus suffered during those days that led up to his arrest, to the fraudulent trial, to the unlawful conviction, to the unjust crucifixion, to his victory over the powers of hell and death, so that we can truly be prepared to celebrate the resurrection and ascension of the King. In closing, I will borrow John's salutation from Revelation 1 and offer it as a benediction for those who read or listen to this perspective. Revelation 1, 4-7 Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from, from the seven spirits who before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.